And thank you for that wonderful praise time. We're a praise team. I'd like to use a brief section of Psalm 139 for our opening prayer this morning. So if you join me in prayer. We will praise you, our Father, for we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that our soul knows very well. Our frame was not hidden from you when we were made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw our substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written the days fashioned for us when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to us, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When, I, when we awake, we are still with you. Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear your wonderful word. In Jesus' name, amen. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We're going to be exploring some components of that uh, this Sunday and next while Dorman is away. But this morning I want to describe a subject that is so important in the Bible that it's like a hub. You know, on a bicycle wheel, the hub is where all the spokes come together. They meet right there in the middle. Sometimes commercial airlines will have a hub airport where many, if not most, of their flights will go in and out of that central airport. If you want to fly from one city to another, sometimes you can't go directly. You have to first go to the hub, and then you can fly to your destination. Many years ago, I had to travel to Albuquerque a lot in my job, And um, on a couple of occasions where the schedule was really tight, where I had a very early morning meeting in Albuquerque, I had to go there and then get back uh, that afternoon, uh, I would take American Airlines early in the morning. Well, I don't know how it is now, but back then, you couldn't just fly from Amarillo to Albuquerque. You had to fly from Amarillo to their hub, American Airlines hub in Dallas-Fort Worth, I see somebody's been there shaking their head. And then, once you get to Dallas-Fort Worth, then you can go to any of the cities that are serviced by that hub, in my case, Albuquerque. So, in that fairly extreme example, you end up flying about 1,000 miles to get to a town that's about 290 miles away. Well, the subject I want to cover this morning is kind of like that. It's like a hub in the Bible. And there are so many important teachings in Scripture that help us with our daily walk, very practical things in Scripture. But I believe that in order to fully grasp some of those, before we can really live them out, we must first go through this hub and grasp it. Without doing so, we may be able to explore some of those topics, get some benefit from them. But to really get all the benefit, we need to go through this hub or else we'll have misunderstandings that can constantly be throwing stumbling blocks into our path of full understanding. Now, of course, the greatest hub is Jesus. 
He is the central theme, the central character in all of Scripture. If we miss that hub, we've missed it all. We miss salvation. We missed wonderful fellowship with our Lord and Savior, our Creator. So He is the central hub. But even so, I I would say that we cannot fully appreciate all that He has done for us without going through this secondary but still very important hub that I want to discuss this morning. I've, my understanding on this subject is growing, but I have seen enough to believe, come to believe, that it is one of the great hub truths of all the Scripture. This truth I'm talking about is that you and I are tripartite beings. Now, tripartite is just a fancy way of saying three parts. You are a three-part being. You consist of spirit, soul, and body. Now, most of you in this room already know that. But, you know, some people will say the devil is in the details. Well, in this case, the divine is in the details. So we want to look at some of the details of this this morning. We want to see... What really is the spirit? What is the soul? We know what the body is. But how do they interact with each other? There is an authority structure within them that we'll talk about. Uh, Also, how does the authority of the Holy Spirit relate to our spirit, soul, and body? Those are some things we want to, to look at. So if I could use the airline metaphor one more time. This morning we're going to fly to Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. And then next week I want us to go on to Albuquerque. But I need to make sure we all get to everything we need at Dallas-Fort Worth to fully appreciate what we're going to find in Albuquerque. Let me offer my opinion on how important this hub really is. Without a solid understanding of our makeup of spirit, soul, and body, we cannot fully appreciate exchange, and in particular, the three frames of exchange. We also will not have the solid foundation we need so that deep down, we really know that we are secure in our union with Christ and in our identity with Christ. And without understanding these things, we'll have no choice but to try to live the Christian life in our own strength. And you and I have heard it from this pulpit more than once. The Christian life is not hard to live. It's impossible to live in our own strength. Were it not for the great exchange and the resulting union with Christ, we would have no hope of living a life that is pleasing to God we would have no hope of experiencing true intimacy with Him in the here and now, right now on this earth. And without understanding some of the details of our tripartite nature, we can spend our entire lives fighting an exhausting battle against our our old sin nature because we may not realize that old nature is already dead. Yes, there is something to be fought, but it's not our old sin nature. And that will come up as we discuss this further. And because of that misunderstanding, if someone has that misunderstanding, we'll be diverting our attention and our energy away from the real battle, 
which is sin dwelling in the flesh. So we'll talk about that as well. And if we're doing that, we're not living the abundant life that Jesus came to give us. I would even go so far as to say that without a a real good understanding of the authority structure that governs our spirit, soul, and body, we'll have a hard time really understanding what worship is. Who would have thought worship is related to this topic? But it is. I believe this subject unlocks the mystery of why there had to be an Old Covenant and an Old Testament with its animal sacrifices, with its commandments, with its fleshly ordinances. That had to happen before there could be a new covenant which rendered all of those things unnecessary. And perhaps first and foremost, without a solid grasp of this great truth, we'll never be able to fully believe, you'll never be able to fully believe that you are the righteousness of Christ right now because you will see and be aware of thoughts and actions that you know are not in accordance with righteousness. Those two things can be true at the same time, but we'll never understand how that can be without getting spirit, soul, and body. Well, by now you're probably sufficiently convinced that I think this is a really important topic, that it's foundational to so many things in Scripture. So my job now is to present some evidence to you and see if you find it convincing. All of those topics and many others are destination cities that require us to first go through this important hub that I want to begin to present this morning. So this is part one of a message entitled, Some Thoughts on Walking in the Spirit. Now the reason I put some thoughts in there, instead of just saying it's a message called Walking in the Spirit, I'm not qualified to give a comprehensive presentation on what it means to walk in the Spirit. I feel like I'm just leaving the starting gate. But I also know I've begun to learn some things that have held back my understanding on this subject for over 50 years. And the corrections that I've been, the Lord's been showing me uh, are some of the things we'll be talking about today and, and next week. One of the things that held me back was a misunderstanding which says knowing about walking in the Spirit only involves the Spirit. The body and soul are not, in, not involved. Well, that kind of sounds like it should make sense, doesn't it? Walk in the Spirit, we just need to know about the Spirit. The other parts really aren't that critical in this discussion. Well, I'm discovering that is not only not right, it is far from right. It is very wrong. Our soul and our bodies can be allies in our quest to walk in the Spirit In fact, they're designed that way. We were designed to walk in the Spirit, spirit, soul, and body. But if we don't understand how all these parts work together, then our soul and body can also sabotage our every attempt to walk in the Spirit. So, put your tray tables up, fasten your seatbelts, and let's fly to DFW. Let's look at what the Bible says about this crucial subject of spirit, soul, and body. 
Now, there are two primary verses most often used to support the view that God created humans as tripartite, three-part beings. Sometimes this view is called the trichotomous view. Anytime you see tri, we're talking about the three, three parts. So I want to present these two verses. Then I want to tell you that this subject is a little bit controversial and why. But first the verses. First Thessalonians 5.23 is the classic verse. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now to my knowledge, this is the only passage in Scripture where spirit, soul, and body, all three, are mentioned in the same verse. Now, next I want to show you a real simple diagram. It can't get any more simple than that, but it's already starting to show us something. And I'll have two diagrams this morning. I'm going to describe them just a little in case you're at the back and have trouble seeing the details, uh, but also in case someone's listening to a recording. Uh, We have three boxes, spirit, soul, and body, in that order from the top down. You'll see that they're separate boxes. These are three separate things, all of which that make up the larger box, which is you and me. Also, I believe, um, well, you'll notice that the order of the boxes, spirit, soul, body, they're in the same order that we just saw in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. I don't believe that order is accidental. It really shows the authority and what I've started calling the, uh, the flow of influence is from top down. Now, the second verse that's really important along these lines is Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, that verse does not mention the body, but it does clearly make a distinction between the soul and the spirit. So how could this be a controversial topic? Well, there are many fine Christian theologians, pastors, scholars, and just students of the Bible who believe that God created humans as dichotomous, only two parts. Let me show you a verse that's sometimes used to support that view. 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul wrote, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. So there in this verse, Paul mentions the outward man, which is the body. All these different views, they all agree on the body. I mean, it's hard to argue with that. What they disagree on is those parts we can't see. How many of them are there? So the the outward man here is the flesh and blood part of us that we can see and feel. And by the way, everyone, please keep in mind the Bible often uses the word man, referring to mankind. So it's men, women, boys, girls. There's no gender separation on things like this. Then Paul uses the term inward man. And he uses that as a reference to that intangible part of us that cannot be seen. It's the part of us that continues to live after this physical body dies. Some people who hold to a two-part view refer to that inward man as the spirit. Some will call it the soul. Some call it the mind. But it's just one part 
And it's, it's the part that cannot be seen. But who is to say here in this verse that the inward man itself does not consist of spirit and soul? So there's nothing in this verse that would prevent us from making that distinction. Now I find 1 Thessalonians 5.23 and Hebrews 4.12, those first two passages we looked at, to be quite compelling in the way they distinguish between spirit and soul. Now, some might argue, well, you can't just build a doctrine on one or two verses, and I wholeheartedly agree. But there are dozens of verses that talk about the Spirit. There are dozens of verses that talk about the soul. So we can't just arbitrarily make up a rule and say that the only verses that count are those that mention soul and spirit in the same verse. You know, that's just arbitrary, and it would uh, keep us from understanding some things. So I believe there's plenty of evidence to support we are spirit, soul, and body. Let me give you one other compelling argument I just came across this week. One author pointed out two features in the Greek text of 1 Thessalonians 5.23. He pointed out, um, you see there in green, the word and. It says in the Greek, soul, excuse me, spirit and soul and body. And then the definite article, which in the English language is the word the, also appears before all three of these. So in Greek, you'll see, and may your whole the spirit and the soul and the body be preserved blameless. Now that's not a good English sentence, so the translators reworked it a little bit to what you now have in in your own Bible there. But... The author that uh, I was reading that was pointing these things out, and by the way, I did check those. Both of those are accurate uh, statements that he made. He believes that Paul was very uh, purposefully making a distinction there between spirit, soul, and body. So I found that pretty convincing. So I wanted you just to know there is some controversy between a three-part and a two-part view. And if you want to pursue that farther, there are endless articles on the internet (laughs) that will argue one way or another. There's no end to it. Now, I'd like to put up a little bit more detailed diagram. And I know that's, boy, that's even hard for me to read from here. Uh, You still see spirit, soul, and body. The top box spirit says communion with God. So this is a believer. That would not apply to an unbeliever. Communion with God in the Spirit. Then you'll notice there are three circles in the middle box, the soul. And those three circles represent the mind, the will, and the emotions. We've heard Dorman talk about that. Then the bottom part, uh, the body has two boxes. One of them says the five senses, which is our world consciousness. You're hearing me right now. You're seeing me with your physical eyes, physical ears. It's also our senses, how we touch, touch, taste, and feel. And then the other part there, it says expression. It's with our body that we express ourselves. I'm speaking to you now. I'm using my body to speak to you. So thoughts are coming, I hope, from my spirit, through my soul, into my body, and out to you. So the body is very important. It's, it's our world consciousness and our means of expression. But the spirit is our spirit consciousness. 
and our spirit expression. They're almost like symmetrical. They just live in two different spheres, one spiritual and one physical. Also, I, I just need to say, I think these diagrams are kind of helpful, but no diagram like this can ever fully portray something as complex as a human being, but I hope they're helpful. Now, let me give you one example right out of the book of Genesis that shows spirit, soul, and body. And I really like this example because it helps us see those distinctions. In Genesis 2.16, we see where the Lord told Adam, do not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for in the day, very important phrase, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So God says, notice God didn't say, I'm going to kill you. If you eat that, he's just saying, here are the consequences. If you eat of that fruit, here's what will happen to you. Kind of like if you run out in front of a car, I'm not going to make the car run over you. It's just a natural consequence of what you're doing. So God said, in the very day you eat of it, you will surely die. Yet, the book of Genesis in chapter 5 tells us that Adam went on to father lots of children. He lived to the ripe old age of 930 years. So he certainly did not die physically on that day. So just in the first five chapters of Genesis, we're beginning to get a feel that what God defines as death is not necessarily the way we define it. The ceasing of the heartbeat, the ceasing of brain activity. That's what we tend to call death. Back to that diagram for a moment. Adam and Eve both ate the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And as I just said, their bodies did not die that day. Well, you remember what happened right after they ate that fruit. The first thing that happens to them is they became afraid. Well, what is fear? It's an emotion. And emotions are in the soul. So right there, we've got one out of the three things in the soul. What did they do next? They concocted a little plan, didn't they? Well, we better go sow fig leaves together and cover ourselves. How did they do that? With their minds. They came up with that plan. And then they came up with the plan, but they still had a choice. I wonder, did one of them say to the other, maybe we ought to just go to God and tell him what we did and ask him to forgive us. I don't know if they had a discussion like that. Regardless, they chose with their will, we're going to go sow fig leaves together. So right there we see all three components of the soul very much alive after they partook of that fruit. Now, if you believe that man has only two parts, let's say a body and a soul, then how can you describe what died on that day that they ate of the fruit. You see a problem right there with the two-part view. So what you do, if you, if you want to hold to the two-part view no matter what, you're going to have to get a little creative. And you might come up with a theology that says, well, they didn't, they didn't really die that day. That's not what God meant. But the death process began that day. I kind of held to that view for a long time. Uh, that the death process began on that day. Or we might say, well, their bodies didn't die on that day, but their communication with God 
was damaged that day. And I certainly would agree with that. Their communication was horribly damaged on that very day. But if that's what God had in mind, wouldn't he have said that? Would he have really, if he meant your communications with me are going to be damaged if you eat that fruit, why would he say, you'll surely die on the day you eat of it? So I think that doesn't really hold water either. On the other hand, if we believe that humans have three parts, we have one more part to consider, and that's the spirit. And I believe on the day they ate of that fruit, Adam's spirit died that very day. Eve's spirit died that very day. Let's think about the spirit for a moment. What does it mean to say their spirits were dead? Uh, there's a great quotation. Some of you have heard Dorman mention Malcolm Smith. He wrote the book about the blood covenant, a phenomenal book, a great uh, man that wrote that. Um, he had a little definition of death in that book, The Power of the Blood Covenant, and it goes like this. The problem with defining death is that those who are in the state of death are the ones who are doing the defining. <laughs> and they are convinced that they are alive. From their perspective, they are alive now, and death is just what happens at the end of physical life. But the Bible plainly says that outside of Christ, they are not alive now. In other words, on our planet, there are billions of walking dead right now, and I'm not talking about those zombie programs. Malcolm Smith goes on, This is the world of the walking dead who do not live but exist. Therefore, we must define death as including but so much more than what occurs to the body at the end of physical life. And then here's a key sentence. Death must be understood as separation from, of being unaware and unresponsive to, the dimension that one is dead to. So we can be dead spiritually, dead physically. The physically dead human is conscious in another dimension but separated from the physical world and therefore unaware and unresponsive to it. So back to the question, what does it mean that Adam and Eve's spirits died? Does it mean that their spirits ceased to exist? Does it mean their spirits were rendered inoperative? They're still there but like a, a piece of broken machinery, it just doesn't work anymore. Or does it mean, I'm really intrigued by this possibility, kind of leaning in this direction, does it mean their spirit was turned over from being used by God to being used by Satan? I think there's plenty of scriptural evidence to support that last idea. At the very least, I think we're on safe ground to say it means the person is not able to have communion with God at the least. Now before we move on to talk about the soul, let's look at a beautiful passage of scripture which it doesn't distinguish between soul and spirit. What it does, it distinguishes between a dead spirit and an alive spirit. It's found in the first few verses of Ephesians 2. Starting in verse 1, Paul writes, and you, and he could be saying that to each one here who has trusted into Christ. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now notice right there, dead in trespasses and sins. Obviously, 
the body was still alive, the soul was alive because the person's committing trespasses and sins, and yet God's verdict is you were dead in those trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's another way of saying Satan, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So here's the downside, the negative side of having a dead spirit. God considers that person dead, and now Satan is working in that person. They are a son or a daughter of disobedience. And then verse 3, Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. That's the downside. Now the human problem is that each of us was born with a dead spirit. As, As a result of the fall of Adam and Eve, We all were born just like they were with dead spirits. And um, here we'll see some more clues about, or here we do see some more clues, but it happens when a person's spirit is dead. Now, a person in that state, they are enslaved to fulfill the desires of the flesh and the mind. They cannot get out of it. Even the so-called good things they want to do they're doing them in the flesh. And as Isaiah 64, 6 says, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. They're trapped. They cannot, you cannot behave your way out of a problem that Adam's sin got us into, is how I've heard one person put it. You cannot behave your way out of a problem that Adam's sin got you into despite all the religions out there that will try to convince you to keep trying. Keep on trying. I love how the next verse begins. The next verse begins, but God. Hallelujah for but God. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now we see the positive side of this. When we trust into Christ, God raises us up and makes us sit together with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That could never be said of one who is spiritually dead. One other thing that cannot be said of someone who is spiritually dead, Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. That's how the Holy Spirit talks to us, is in our spirit, that we are children of God. So we just saw from the example of Adam and Eve how they used the three elements of their souls, their spirit, so, of their of their souls, excuse me, their mind, will, and emotions, to come up with that plan to cover themselves. Now I'm not going to say much at all about the emotions today, and just a, a short statement about the will. But I need to make a really, really important statement about the mind. And here is the point. Your mind is not the same thing as your brain. Had you thought about that? 
your mind is not the same thing as your brain. Now, some brain scientists, not all, will disagree with that. They think that our mind is a creation of the brain, and when we die and the brain dies, then the person's just gone. The person ceases to exist. Personhood is just a matter of functioning of the brain, those people would say. Well, let's look at what Jesus said. He told a story that in a very interesting way illustrates this point. You remember that story of the rich man and Lazarus? Now, this isn't the same Lazarus that he raised from the dead, but the beggar named Lazarus. We find that story in Luke 16, starting in verse 19. Jesus said, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously. That means he ate really well every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Well, let's stop right there for a second. So we have these two men in this story. By the way, isn't it interesting that the rich man's name is not recorded, but this poor beggar who just lived off of crumbs that were given to him, his name is recorded for us. 2,000 years later, we're talking about Lazarus, the beggar. These two men weren't friends, but they saw each other probably frequently. Apparently, this beggar was so uh, impaired physically that he couldn't walk to the rich man's gate. He had to be taken and laid at the gate, is the way Jesus told it. So whenever the rich man would leave his property or enter his property, he would walk walk right past Lazarus. Now in the story, both men have died. Jesus specifically said of the rich man that he died and was buried. So let me ask you, where, at this moment in the story, where are the two brains of Lazarus and the rich man? They're inside their dead bodies, Inside a grave, probably a poor man's mass grave for the case of Lazarus, and then in a fine tomb. But in both cases, their brains are decaying into dust at that very moment. Jesus continues, And being in torments in Hades, he, the rich man, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember, isn't that an interesting word? Remember that in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. As you can see from those last four verses, these two men, in one sense, have gone to the same place. They can see each other. They can communicate. But in another very real sense, they're in two different places because there's a great gulf between them, and the one cannot cross over to get to the other. Now, 
that's a real fascinating study in itself. That all changed, by the way, after the crucifixion and resurrection. That's not where Lazarus is anymore. It's not where Abraham is. They're in heaven. But they had to wait till the resurrection for that. That's another message. For now, we just want to notice that the two men are still very much alive. They can see. They can hear. uh, Excuse me, the rich man is apparently in torment and he just wants a little cool water to cool his tongue and yet his body's up in a grave somewhere, decaying. And also the rich man not only recognized Lazarus, he also knew his name. He said, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to help me. And how did Abraham respond? He said, Son, remember. So here... How can this guy remember without his brain? Because his mind is in the soul. And his soul is still alive. Now if you're like me, if you ponder these things very long, you'll start to wonder about dementia. About Alzheimer's. How is it that a person, their physical body is still alive, their soul is still alive, And yet the memories seem to be out of reach. That's still a mystery. And I pray to God, my mom died with this. And I pray to God, and you know know people that are suffering with it, have suffered with it. And I just pray that medical science will come up with a way to alleviate that suffering. But I can't help but think that the real solution is going to come from a humble student of the word that really gets this distinction between spirit, soul, body, the relationship between the mind and the brain. And I think that's what... They may help medicine come up with a breakthrough. They may come up with the real spiritual root that will help to cure these things. And this whole area of the brain... And some cutting-edge neuroscience is something we'll look at on our way to Albuquerque next week. One last thing about the will. One of the most powerful parts of your being is your will. Anytime you hear words like decision, decide, choice, choose, that all has to do with the will. It's where we ultimately choose to follow Christ or not follow Him. It's where we decide how we're going to live each moment of every day of our lives. If we belong to Christ, then we are to walk in the Spirit. What does that mean? At, it, at its most basic, it means we submit our spirit to the Holy Spirit. And our soul is to be submitted to our spirit. And our body is to be submitted to our soul. So there's the authority and flow of influence, Holy Spirit through the human spirit into the soul, into the body. Just like that. Well, I know this has been a fair amount of technical material, and we'll wind this down. We'll finish talking about soul and spirit, um, excuse me, soul and body next week, probably. And just in case you're now wondering, okay, now why is, tell me again, why are we spending so much time on the soul and the body when we're, our subject is walking in the spirit? And I'll just reiterate that our soul and our bodies can be allies in this walk, 
but can also be among our worst enemies if we allow the, the true enemy to get control in there. Now, if, if a lot of this is new to you, I just encourage you, uh, Gail can get you a CD this week or it'll probably be online within two or three days. And if you need to review that, do that before next week uh, and we'll come and, and start from here. One last thing for you to ponder before we meet again. When you were born again, God gave you a new heart. And I think that includes the new spirit. It may be synonymous, uh, but at least it includes a new spirit. So when one of your old pre-salvation thoughts, sinful thoughts or temptations comes to your mind, where did it come from? Think about that. It may be more than one answer. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that you have so fearfully and wonderfully made us. Lord, I know you've designed us to be able to fully accomplish your will in our lives. I pray your spirit will just cause these things to sink in, that you will bring new revelation to all of us on this topic uh, in the days ahead. We lift up Dorman and Jana and pray for a wonderful, wonderful week ahead for them. In Jesus' name, amen.